Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller, and I trust you're having a wonderful Christmas season. You know, this is the time of year when a whole lot of great things happen. Tough time of year for some people as well, as they kind of look back and say, another year's gone. Did I really accomplish what I wanted to accomplish? Well, regardless, it's a great time to draw a line in the sand and say, even if I didn't accomplish last year what I wanted to, what am I going to do to make the next year the best year of my life? So that's where we are right at the end of the year. Great time to be evaluating what do I want to do next year? Well, this is a time each week where we grab 48 minutes here just to examine the value of our work. Now, I believe, as you well know, that work is important. It's not just an exchange of time for a paycheck, but it's our best opportunity to live out our calling, our purpose, our mission, our destiny, and yes, our passion. Going to be talking about that today. Is it really important to combine your passion with your work, or is that just something we put on the back burner? Well, here's some of the questions we're going to be addressing today. Dan, how do I protect my idea for a green product? And one of the questions is, how do I respond to Mike Rowe? He's the guy from Dirty Jobs saying that following your passion is probably some of the worst advice you ever received. Going to be commenting on that. Someone says, do I need a master's degree to successfully run a retail business? Now, somebody else in response to, I frequently say if you're going to be starting a new business, it better be up and running and profitable within three to six months. Otherwise, I think there's too long of a transition time and you start borrowing from the success in other areas of your life. How do you do that? How do you make a new business profitable in three to six months? One person asked, how often should I keep calling after interviewing for a job? So we're going to be going through some of those. But before we get into those, I want to just um, share a quotation. I usually have, I, I love quotations. I've always loved quotations. Quotations seem to be they're just little snippets, just little capsules of wisdom often. Now, sometimes they're rubbish, but <laughs> just because somebody famous said something doesn't mean it makes sense. But, but a lot of times, you know, they do really capture a little bit of wisdom. Joanne and I were just in Chicago, which is our annual tradition to go right before Christmas. Joanne's birthday is the 22nd of December. So as a little girl, you can imagine what happened for her birthday nothing who's going to celebrate a birthday three days before christmas so it was kind of always overshadowed so when we got married for many years now i've made a big deal out of her birthday and uh, discovered years ago in some of my speaking engagements that she loved she was just captured by the the magical beauty of chicago at christmas time so we've made it a tradition to go to chicago for her birthday, right before Christmas, spent a few days there, not full of commitments with other people. Other people, inevitably, somebody says, gee, how about if we join you there? And we say, uh, no, no thanks, because that is really a time carved out uh, just for the two of us. Uh, Joanne is like a, a little kid, knowing that that's a special time, and it uh, makes a big emotional deposit for me, frankly. Uh, puts a whole lot of uh, meat in that particular bank account 
if you aren't familiar with emotional bank account, it's something Stephen Covey talks about, but something we ought ought to be aware of. When we talk about relationships, you're either making deposits or withdrawals. Well, I want to have a whole lot of deposits in the emotional bank account with my wife. So when I make those inevitable withdrawals, which I'm going to do, sure, do I screw up from time to time? Absolutely. I just want to make sure I don't bankrupt that account. So going to Chicago is a big one. Anyway, the Sears Tower, actually, it's not called the Sears Tower anymore. The naming rights for that expired several years ago. It's called the Willis Tower, but people still refer to it as the Sears Tower because for many, many years, it was the tallest building in the world, not just the United States. And yes, even the years after the Twin Towers were built in New York, the Sears Tower was taller than those. It's taller than the Trump Tower. Uh, we, We went up the Let's see what building. We went up uh, the John Hancock building. Uh, We did meet some friends in Chicago. Uh, Mike and Kim Galvin. Mike is one of our 48 Days coaches, real estate investor. They took us to dinner, took us to lunch in the signature room on the 96th floor of the John Hancock building. Now, that's really up there. The view of Chicago is spectacular. We sat right next to the glass looking out over the lake, looking out over the building where Oprah has her condo and other people like Donald Trump have properties and things, but spectacular view. That's on the 96th floor. The Sears Tower is 108 stories and was built many, many years ago. The architect for that name is Daniel Burnham. Now, he designed that Golly, he did uh, the Masonic Temple building there. He did a lot of the buildings down along the waterfront that preserved a beautiful waterfront that Chicago has where they have parks and um, walking areas out next to the water where it's not just buildings right up to the lake's edge, which is a really great way to preserve uh, some of the natural beauty there. But anyway, there's there's a plaque at the base of the Sears Tower where Daniel Burnham says this, Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably will themselves not be realized. Make big plans. Aim high in hope and work, remembering that a noble logical diagram once recorded will not die. Golly, I love that. For years, I've used that. Years and years ago, the first time we were in Chicago and saw that, it just really struck with me. Make no small plans. They have no magic to stir men's souls. I've heard people talk like Robert Shuler of the Crystal Cathedral in California. He said it's easier to raise a million dollars you know, for a statue out front of the church than it is to raise a thousand dollars for a new dishwasher in a kitchen. You know, people don't get excited about little plans. They get excited about big plans. Now, I, I have a lot of big plans. I mean, I, I, and it doesn't include, you know, being a billionaire and having a 20,000 square foot house or those kind of things. That's not what I, those aren't big plans that are that appealing to me, but I do admire, you know, people who make big plans. It may be somebody who has been on welfare and the plan is to, you know, get a trade degree and get a job paying 10 bucks an hour. I mean, that may be a big plan for a person who's been down and out for several years, but I love when somebody makes a plan that seems insurmountable, something 
that is going to really stretch you, something that's going to have to engage God's power and the help and support of those around you that goes beyond just your own natural abilities. I mean, I love things like that. But that's my quote for today. Make no small plans. They have no magic to stir men's souls. A couple of different ways that I read it is no magic to stir men's blood. But uh, there's another rendering of his quotation that says to stir men's souls. So make big plans. This is the time to do it. Make big plans for 2011. What do you want to accomplish? How are you going to achieve some new goals in 2011? Now, I can't imagine anybody being content to just keep the status quo. Now, I hear that sometimes. Well, if I can just kind of keep things as they are, you know, I'll be lucky. Well, it, it sounds like that comes from somebody who feels like they're a victim, not somebody who's in a driver's seat. I mean, if you're in a driver's seat, why wouldn't you want to explore new things, go new places, achieve new goals? Just keeping things the same has never been an appealing position for me, no matter how good things are. Well, I better, I'll, I'll switch gears here instead of going down that. But I, obviously, I hope that you as listeners to this podcast are people who do set goals, who set big goals, who want to achieve things that are going to be extraordinary that are going to stand out, that are going to give you a level of success that few other people experience. This isn't to be elitist. I mean, everybody has the opportunity, but I know few people do that. And it reminds me, when uh, my oldest son, Kevin, was about 13 years old, I showed him the power of compound interest. He had a little transaction. I don't remember what we did, sold a motorcycle or something, and he had a couple thousand dollars. And I said, you know, if you put that money away if you put it into something that's going to give you I think I used like 12 or 14 percent as a figure of interest at that point nothing you know really grandiose just kind of what the market was returning at that point but it would mean that your money would double every four years and I showed him what would happen if he made a one-time deposit of two thousand dollars what would happen if he just did that one time and never touched it again when you're 13 years old well, every four years, did every money double at $2,000 one-time deposit? Well, you can do the math on that, but it grows to a million dollars pretty quickly. And he was like, oh my gosh, Dad, does anybody else know about this? Well, I laugh, and I'm sure that you do too, because having the knowledge of that is not what makes it happen. It requires discipline, requires a whole lot of things to actually turn that into reality, but just knowing that it's possible doesn't mean that it's going to occur for anybody. I mean, sometimes people are surprised that I so readily share ideas that I have. I met recently with with a, a gentleman who has been extremely successful and spent four hours one afternoon with him just picking his brain. And I thanked him profusely. He, I mean, he laid out his business overview, gave me his prospectus sheets. I mean, he showed me how his business works. And I'm like, my gosh, I mean, that's really generous of you to show me the inside workings of your business when you've been so wildly successful. And he's like, Dan, he says, you know, as well as I do, the information doesn't make you successful. You have to implement it. You have to do something with it. And certainly I feel the same way. But people often comment that I'm so open with my ideas. And I'm telling you, you know, ideas are a dime a dozen. Ideas don't make you rich. It's the plan of action, the implementation that can transform your life. And that takes work. 
So just having an idea, that's a great starting point. But what are you going to do? What are the steps you're going to do to turn that into something that can transform your level of success? Well, if you've got questions, you can shoot them into just... You can shoot an email to askdan at 48days.com or use a little form on the podcast link at 48days.com. I love each week going through the questions that you all submit. Um, I appreciate your openness to having me share those in ways not to uh, embarrass anybody, certainly, no matter what the question is, but to, to bring hope and encouragement, inspiration and insight to all of us that are probably wondering the same kind of thing. How can this help me? And I trust the variation of questions that we've got here. I don't try to categorize them where we have particular themes. Each week we have a wide variety of questions dealing with life, business, job, career, success in many ways. And uh, I love the variety. I love going through and appreciate each week that you send in those questions. So we have a lot of fodder here to share, to give you feedback and, and share with others as well. Igor, no, it actually is Igor, says, Dan, the last name is a challenging one as well. So I suspect, you know, sometimes I, I'm sure that people put in pseudonyms. They put in fake names, and that's certainly fine. You can put in Sam or Sharon or Bob or Catherine or whatever, and I'll just read it as it is. Uh, but I suspect this is the real deal. Igor says, I'm an avid follower of your material, love your books and podcast. My question is, I have an idea for a new siding product for residential construction. It is very green and eco-friendly product. It is also something that just about any metal shop can do. So I'm wondering how to protect it, how to go about selling it. Should I just go to a local lumber yard and try to have them stock the product? Do I need a business license to sell it? I've been in construction for about six years. Know that this is something that has potential if I get it out there. Just like you say, a product is only 10% of the process. Well, Igor, I appreciate your question. Obviously, you've been listening. Yes, having a great product is 10%. 90% then is how are you going to promote it, price it, get it out there in the marketplace, and have people put money in your bank account. So you're right on track with that. Right off the bat, I would suggest that you do a business plan, even though it's just a product. But I don't I'd say that lightly because that's all you need. But having a product that you can produce, go through a business plan so that you see yourself in business of selling this product. So you look at all the, the components that are necessary for a successful business. Who is your target market? What do you bring to the table in terms of skills that revolve around this product that'll help you run the business whose skills do you need that would complement your own to make this business successful what is your marketing plan what has to happen financially you know if you make a product for four dollars and you sell it to the local lumber yard for five dollars and you sell a million you've made a million dollars well but that's not really true i would never suggest that you create a plan like that. If you make something for $4, then hopefully you're able to sell that for 10 or $12 at least because you need that much margin to cover the cost of administrative things and marketing, the other things that are part of running a business. So don't think that you can just increase, you know, by a dollar on a $4 product in the example I used you know, that's not a reasonable margin. Most of the things that I sell in our business, I look for at least four to five times cost. It's just not worth the hassle for something 
even if we know we could sell a lot of them, we're only making a buck or two a piece. So I look for four to five times the margin. That's typically what we're going to be looking for on a product as well. So create a business plan. If you need a format for that, there are links on 48days.com or 48days.net under resources. We have worksheets where you can just pull up a free business planning guide and walk through that. Take a couple hours to really see how is this going to look so you see yourself as being in business, not just selling a product. In terms of how do you go about protecting it, I assume, now I don't know exactly, but there are two primary kinds of patents. There are really more, but there are two primary ones, those being a utility patent or a design patent. Now, a utility patent would be if you have something that has an electronic mechanism in it, or it's the, it's a chemical compound, or it's the the next you know Polaroid camera, although those are certainly dated, obviously, but something like that that has a real unique mechanism that would be a mechanical, a utility patent. I doubt that's the case with what you're talking about here. It sounds like this is something any metal shop can do. You would be looking at what is called a design patent. A design patent, frankly, doesn't give you a whole lot of protection. Somebody can simply change the design a little bit and go on and not violate the patent. Very hard to really have a lot of protection. And I suspect that having a patent in your situation here is not really a relevant issue. Neither is copyright. So the only thing that really may be a factor is trademark. And what that then implies is that you have a really cool name for the product that you have. So if you're you're making a product and it's for buildings, I don't know what it is, but let's take it as an example, Weed Eater. Well, Weed Eater, now that's become a generic kind of title like Kleenex or Scotch Tape, but initially that was a trademark name, Weed Eater or Frisbee. Same kind of thing, or hula hoop. I mean, that's a trademark name. Those have become almost ubiquitous in that anything with that kind of design or function, we call that name, but those are trademark names. But another example that perhaps is better would be Doggles. Now, Doggles, uh, there was a young couple who realized their dog was squinting in the sun, and much as like we as humans that enjoy sunglasses, they thought, well, I ought to do this for our dog and they made sunglasses for their dog but rather than just saying we have sunglasses for dogs no they coined the term doggles that's trademarked that's pretty easy to do for about 300 bucks you can trademark a name you can do that yourself by simply going to uspto.gov that's United States Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO.gov. You can do a research there and see if there's something similar to the product that you have. But what I would suggest is that you come up with a really great name for it. Now, again, not knowing exactly what it does, but something that implies the function of the product. And then trademark the name, even if it's a word that you make up and Actually, that's usually better than a generic word, but come up with a name, trademark the name. So you can't stop other people from duplicating the design. I mean, I I really doubt that there's any way to do that. That's okay. I mean, people can design all day long. I mean, can somebody, I can't even protect 48 days to the work you love as a book title. I mean, I really can't. I mean, you, you can't stop somebody else from writing content that is called 48 days and have there been other people that have done that? Um, hundreds and hundreds have done that. But if you Google 48 days, just put 48 days into Google 
and hit search and see what you come up with. I mean, I'm going to own that on Google any day of the week. I don't pay for that positioning. It's just that I've done so much to be the leader of the pack with that particular brand or title or name that somebody would have a pretty hard time you know, catching up to me. That's what you have to do. Just get a great name, trademark the name, get out there, have fun, sell the fire out of it, be the first doing it. Don't worry about trying to protect it in other ways because you really can't do that. God, I'd love to know more about your, uh, uh, what, what it actually is. You know, if you want to send me a, um, a link to actually see what it is, I may have some more specific kind of uh, response for that. Kent says, Dan, uh, fan, big fan of your show, read both your books, love the idea of doing what you love, change my perspective in life. However, I would love to get your response to Mike Rowe saying that following your passion is probably some of the worst advice he ever received in his TED presentation. Now, let me just uh, unpack this a little bit. The TED presentation, T-E-D, stands for Technology, uh, Entertainment, and Design. I mean, it's conferences that were organized a few years ago by Chris Anderson, who's the editor of Wired Magazine, and he puts these together. And people like Mike Rowe and Bill Gates and Bill Clinton and Maya Angelou and goes on and on, you know, a lot of great thinkers, come in they're given 18 minutes to do their presentation and if you want to see this presentation by Mike Rowe you certainly can I'm sure you can just google it and and find it. I did go and look at it and watched his presentation because I know they're only 18 minutes long Mike's presentation is amazingly riveting it, it's hilarious uh, what he talks about some of the dirty jobs and he's the guy from dirty jobs in case you didn't make that connection Dirty jobs, Mike Rowe. And he does say in there, because he works with people as they're doing this show, following them around. And the one particular example that he uses on this presentation is helping a sheep farmer and his wife castrate lambs. They spend an entire day castrating lambs. Well, it's pretty poignant and uh, hilarious, uh, but he's saying that there are a lot of jobs like that where you know, certainly if somebody just followed their passion, they wouldn't be doing that. You know, they'd be, you know, being a golf pro somewhere. But some of the jobs that he is on, you know, where guys are out, uh, the deep sea fishermen that go out and risk their lives and it's cold and bitter and dangerous and all of that, that these are not guys following their passion. They're just doing something to make themselves successful. Now, I, I beg to differ. Yes, as you would expect. Micro said the advice to follow your passion, you know, is ridiculous. You just go find something that uh, the world is going to pay for and do that well. Well, I don't see that working, frankly. I mean, I see a lot of people who have tried that method, and I do not see that being successful. But now here's the caveat in this. Whereas Mike implies that what he would find distasteful, everyone else would as well. That is not true. I know sheep farmers who love doing what they're doing. I know I have some cousins who went to Alaska to be fishermen in the dangerous cold water. I mean, it was an absolute adrenaline rush for them to do that. Not only did they make a lot of money, they loved what they were doing, the experience of doing that. That doesn't sound appealing to me at all, but it is to them. And there are not many things that I see being done but what we would could find somebody who really is passionate about that. I was on a, a live radio interview 
uh, just a couple of days ago out of Chicago and actually did a, a live radio taping when we were in Chicago uh, up there at Moody Radio. This is not that time, but uh, on another radio program that had a caller and he described his he worked for one of the utility companies and he spends weeks and weeks and weeks in the winter time which they have a lot of in chicago repairing people's broken pipes when their pipes freeze and i thought oh my gosh i can't imagine anything i would hate more being out and outside in the cold i hate the cold anyway being outside in the cold you know doing that with the potential of water then uh, bursting in on you and you're cold and wet he described what he was doing as an absolute perfect fit for him. He loved the opportunity to be a hero for those people who had broken water pipes, no water. He was the good guy. He had a chance to, you know, talk to them, share with them. He saw it as a ministry opportunity. Uh, you got to be kidding me. But it was a great reminder to me again. Of, you know, what I see as enjoyable work that aligns with my passion does not necessarily mean that's going to be true for the next guy down the street. I mean, we have a lot of different passions, and it's easy to assume that what I enjoy, everybody else would enjoy, but I know that's not true. So in that sense, I do take exception to what Mike Rose says, that following your passion doesn't make sense, just because he even, he, he talks about, you know, guys who are, I mean, I, I knew a guy one time who uh, started selling junk truck parts. Now, you know, so he's out, you know, in greasy overalls, and he dismantles trucks, but the guy's a bazillionaire, and not only that, I mean, I really could see enjoying that. I mean, I grew up as a kid and, and loving spending time in junkyards. That's how I built my first car, 1931 Model A Ford. I pieced it together piece by piece. When I had enough money, I'd get a steering wheel, and when I had a little more, I'd get a generator, which we had back then before alternators. But, uh, I mean, I love that. I could see really doing that and enjoying it. But Mike seems to frame it as well. You know, nobody would enjoy that. They do it just because of the money. And no, I don't think that's correct. I do disagree on that. Greg says, how much can a retail business owner benefit from a BA in psychology versus a master's? I really want to go back to school just for learning purposes and not for a job. Do you think it would be a waste of time and money if I took out a student loan? Please help. Now, I've got to kind of back up and frame this again. I want to, there, there are several parts to this question. How much can a retail business owner benefit from a bachelor's in psychology versus a master's? I really want to go back to school just for learning purposes and not for a job. Well, to start with, to run a retail business, can you benefit from a bachelor's in psychology or a master's or a PhD? Well, sure you can. I mean, there's enough learning that takes place in those degree programs that there's going to be a lot of applicable areas to anything you do in life, not just running a business. But anything that you do in life, so certainly there's value in that. Is it necessary? Do you have to do that? Does every retail business owner have to have that to have a chance at success? Obviously, no, not at all. If you really want to learn how to run a retail business, well, I doubt that any academic program is going to be very directly correlated. I would rather identify Read these five books. Here are five books that you ought to read. 
And if you read them, if, I mean, we have to assume that you're self-disciplined, self-motivated here. I mean, if you're somebody that has to have somebody looking over your shoulder, uh, you aren't going to be running a retail business to start with. Now, the extension of that is if you have to say have somebody looking over your shoulder in order to have you read a book and learn from it, you know, then you need to go to a traditional classroom and sit there and pay tuition. But if you really are motivated on your own, certainly you can learn the principles for running a retail business more quickly than going through any academic program. There's a concept and I'm, I'm developing this. I'm going to I'm not really ready to uh, lay it out yet, but there's a term called bibliotherapist. Now, if you just understand the etymology of words, you understand biblio means books. So it means somebody who uses books as part of a therapeutic process. I'm developing some principles along those lines. There are so many people who are looking for coaching And even if I have a whole bevy of 48 Days coaches, we can't possibly keep up with the demand for coaching. And certainly, I can't address the needs of lots and lots of people just with uh, time constraints. But what if I could meet with somebody for 20 minutes and then prescribe for them three or four books? Read these books, then we'll get back together and discuss those. Because I think there's a wealth of information and self-learning available just by reading good books. And you hear me talk about that a, a lot. So, yeah, I think there's a ton of value. You can make yourself a better business owner for sure by reading and learning. You can make yourself a better coach. You can make yourself a better mom or dad or pastor or whatever you want to be by reading great material and certainly by going back and getting advanced degrees if you want to do that. Now, I happen to have both a bachelor's in psychology and a master's in psychology. And it was interesting, one of the first things that I did after getting my master's degree, um, never having any desire to be a traditional psychotherapist or counselor, those things moved much too slowly for me, but I was involved in a used car operation in Anaheim, California. And it was interesting to hear people in there looking in from the outside saying, my gosh, Dan, you just got your master's in clinical psychology and now you're selling cars. You know, why aren't you using your degree? (laughs) And I'm like, "Uh, why don't you follow me around for a week and then make a determination as to whether or not I'm using my degree? Now, think about that. I mean, I I guess we assume that selling cars just requires no brains. You just show up with your blue suede shoes, manipulating con people into buying, giving you money. I mean, that's not what real selling is all about. I mean, real selling involves establishing rapport and trust with people. I mean, that's 40% of the process. 30% is identifying the needs of the people that you're talking to. If they don't need what you have, stop the process. There's no point in going on. Then you move into product knowledge or product presentation as 20% and 10% then is closing. I mean, I, I believe that selling is a process to be learned and you can learn how to do it well. I love the process of selling personally, but I've learned, I've studied how to do that well, how to be effective at selling. The first year I was selling cars in Anaheim, California, and I, I, I learned a lot about selling. I mean, one of the things that used car salesmen are, are extremely notorious for is prejudging. 
So you have somebody walk onto the lot. That's a real red flag. They don't even drive in in a trade-in. That's a real red flag. I mean, what if somebody was barefoot and had blue jeans and a T-shirt on? I mean, that you would know right away. They're not a qualified buyer. I'm not going to waste my time with that person. Well, fortunately, I didn't approach selling like that. I wanted to learn how to do it well. And I had just such a customer, as I just described, walk onto the lot soon after I started selling used cars. He was barefoot, had blue jeans on it, and a T-shirt. He wanted to look at a Corvette. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, right. The Corvette was $7,600. Now, this was years ago, uh, but it was $7,600, which was a lot of money for any car. Probably one of the more expensive cars I had on the lot at that point. And we talked about it, blah, 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 back and forth. And I, he really wanted it. And uh, I said, you know, how would you like to pay for this? Are you going to write me a check? He said, no. And he pulled up his T-shirt and started pulling out stacks of $20 bills. And he laid $7,600 in cash on the table. Now, I sold that young man that car. Now, I didn't ask him where he got the money. That's another story. But anyway, I, he, he, gave, he paid me cash. I treated him with as much respect as I would if somebody would have driven on in a late model Cadillac and stepped out in a three-piece suit. I just thought that he deserved my respect and honor if he took the time to walk onto my lot. In the first calendar year, I sold not only that young gentleman a car, but I sold cars to his parents, his aunts and uncles, his cousins, because he told everybody, Dan Miller will respect you. He's fair. He'll take care of you. In that first year, I sold 14 automobiles to that one extended family. And it was because I didn't prejudge, because I did take the time to understand him. Now, let me back up into the question that we're addressing. Did I use my degrees in psychology? Well, I would hope so. If there's anything I learned in psychology, I hope that I did learn how to develop rapport and trust, how to listen effectively, how to communicate well, how to really identify the needs of the person I'm talking to. I mean, isn't that what counseling is all about? How is that any different from what I was doing in selling cars and doing it effectively? So do I think you can use degrees, no matter what it is, to be more effective in business? Yeah, absolutely. Now, in this situation, the difference between a bachelor's and a master's and running a business effectively, I think are insignificant. I, I would not recommend taking out a student loan to go get a master's degree if your goal is to continue running a retail business. No, I wouldn't do that. I'd get three or four books that relate to what you want to do well, read those, study those, and become better at what you're doing. I mean, education takes place in a whole lot of ways other than sitting in a room in a classroom somewhere. I mean, obviously, I mean, we have a product called Think and Grow Rich where I go through how real education can occur outside of a classroom. If you don't have that, you might check that out. Learn and grow rich. But I talk about that. So I think you have to look at where do you want to be five years from now? If you want to be running a business, uh, if you want to in that period of time, take some classes on the side and ultimately get a master's degree, that's fine. But I would not recommend borrowing money to do that. I mean, frame it as you've described it here. You want to go for the learning purposes, not to get another job, but just for the learning well, yeah, you can do that. I mean, I continued on beyond my master's, you know, did my doctoral studies. Again, not knowing at that point I was well down the road, 
you know, as an author, coach, and speaker, I was never going to be putting together a resume and looking for a job. It was for the learning, and I framed it as such, but also, you know, didn't go into student loan debt to do that. Well, let me move on. Rob says, Happy Holidays. Dan, in the past podcast, you've been saying that with a plan, we should be able to transition over to our new business idea in three to six months. To make this happen, what points do we need to consider in our plan? Now, I use that kind of as benchmarks. I mean, obviously, there are situations that are going to be different. But I hear about people who, you know, launch a business idea and three years later, you know, they're making $200 a month. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is not a real business. I mean, if you're just kidding yourself and you have a little hobby, that's okay. But don't describe it as a business and don't devote 20 hours a week to it. Surely not under those circumstances. So I do think that three to six months is a reasonable time frame in which to grow a business if you've really outlined a business that has potential. And when you're growing a business on the side, obviously you're adding time to what you have as your normal work commitment. Now, now I'm, again, uh, making some assumptions here. If you are doing nothing, I mean, if, if you don't have a job, you don't have another business, and you're starting a business from scratch, then by all means, absolutely, it has to be creating income in three to six months, or I would not continue. I mean, we have to assume that this is sucking up resources, time, money, and energy. And if you can't see a return in three to six months, then I wonder if you're really on the right track. Now, how do you do that? By having a well-constructed business plan, by being able to see on paper in advance what should happen to this business, what has to occur for this business to make money. You know, if you're selling a product, what is your profit margin if you're selling them retail to the end use customer or if you're selling them wholesale to a distributor what are the profit margins you have there if you have a keystone markup which is if you pay five dollars for something you sell it for ten i mean that's pretty standard in retail industries that's what they're going to look for they buy something for five dollars they're going to sell it for ten you know if you have that kind of markup how many do you have to sell in a given month in order to create reasonable income for yourself. I mean, can it work? Can it happen? How are you going to find new customers? So those are the things you have to have laid out. You you need to have a marketing strategy. I mean, businesses don't just happen. You don't just happen to have a great product and all of a sudden people are knocking on your door. I mean, the old adage, build a better mousetrap and people will beat a path to your door. It's not true. I mean, it's one of those things that sounds like a nice cliche, and maybe it was true at one point, but it's not anymore. You can have the greatest mousetrap. You can build better software than Bill Gates has ever thought of, and it's not going to put a penny in your pocket unless you have an aggressive marketing plan mapped out. And I just don't hear about... Now, now, now we hear about things that grow virally. I mean, we have, at this point, right at 8,000 members on 48 Days Net. I mean, it's a wonderful community. I don't do anything directly to drive traffic there. That's a different kind of phenomenon. The people who are there get value from being there. They get involved in groups. They post blog questions, forum discussions. They see what happens there. They tell others and people come in there. There's a steady stream of people coming in there. We're planning now what we're going to do at 10 and 15,000 and even more beyond that members. 
I mean, that's cool. And I have never spent a penny on advertising, you know, to promote that and drive people there. So none of the traditional marketing things in terms of advertising. However, do I do things strategically that increase traffic? Absolutely. I mean, when I do radio interviews, which I do nearly every day, I always drop something in there. You know, for more information, you might check out 48days.net and see what other people who have the same kind of question, you know, are getting in terms of advice and input from other members. I mean, I drop something in and boom, people go there. I mean, I did a live radio interview this week and uh, that's exactly what happened. Boom, it caught our screeners for new members off guard. I forgot to alert them because it was a national radio pro program. I forgot to alert them. And yeah, they got overwhelmed with new people coming in. Now we screen people coming in. Not everybody who just comes in and joins actually is approved. We have a process whereby new people are either approved or declined. So they, they it takes a little time for somebody to go through and then approve or decline and tell a person why they're being declined. Great group, incidentally. You know, the 48 Days community is something that blows my mind. I'm, I love seeing what what has happened there and what continues to happen. But those are the kind of things that you need to be strategic about if you're going to grow a business and have it profitable in three to three to six months. Shanek says, I'm a stay-at-home mom who just finished defending for my PhD in statistics. I have no student loan debt. Congratulations. I wanted to start a math coaching business instead of a life coaching business. What are the essential first steps to making this business profitable? Now, when you say a math coaching business, trying to get my head around, I'm not sure how that's different than tutoring or what you would do as a math coach. I mean, I like the sound of it. When we have people who are coaches, you know, people who attend the Coaching with Excellence program here, where we take people with whatever their area of focus is going to be and show them how to turn that into a $100,000 year income. And I think that is possible, yes, regardless of the area that you choose to coach in. So you're going to be a math coach. You need to define who is your target audience. Are you talking about working with high school kids, with college kids who are struggling, with uh, business owners who need to know when you say math, I assume you're not talking about accounting principles. That's quite different. But a math coach, you just need to work. You need to work through a business plan on this, as I suggested for an earlier listener's question as well. You know, how can you see this being profitable? Can you get enough? Now, now high school kids are obviously not going to be writing checks, so you have to sell the service to their parents. How are you going to get in front of enough parents and let them know why this is effective, why this is essential? Is this going to increase their SAT scores? Is it going to get more kids into college, into better colleges, more scholarship funding? I mean, line up with what are the benefits for someone going through your program. I would encourage you to give your business a unique name. So give it an appealing name. Find the Doggles trademark name for what it is you're doing here I mean, we've heard about the Sylvan Learning Center and places like that, but I think you could do something even classier than that. But work on giving yourself a great name so it has an appealing sound to it. I mean, most kids aren't going to be drawn to math coach. You haven't going to go see my math coach. So you might even look at some other way to describe what it is you're doing. But uh, 
yeah, you can, I think you can just work through like you would any other business. What has to happen in the first three months for you to really tip the scale and make this a profitable coaching business? Here, Don says, Dan, yikes. He says, I love your program and hope you that keep them coming for a long time. You scared me, though, with the above advice. He had in the subject line, don't worry about liability insurance. Now, <laughs> I don't remember exactly the context, but I, I assumed that I was talking about the fact that I don't have a lot of liability insurance for what I do. And frankly, it's impossible to get as a life coach. This is too new a field and insurance people don't understand exactly what we do and you really can't get liability insurance for this. And I usually tell people I don't lay awake at night worrying about that. I mean, there are people who as authors try to get liability insurance. So if somebody reads their book, you know, they don't get sued for that. Now, is it possible? Yes, it is. But I think you can immerse yourself in so many details that you become uh, afraid of moving ahead with a business idea at all. Yes, we're in a litigious society. Yes, there's a lot of frivolous lawsuits and a lot of attorneys out here who are ambulance chasers and looking for somebody to sue. But if you get wrapped up in all that, you'll be uh, afraid to do anything unusual and thus you continue doing what you're doing. So, yeah, I do downplay the importance of insurance in some situations. Um, Don continues, you, you really open yourself up, you and your enterprise up for liability suits with advice like you gave recently. I actually agree with the advice you gave, but you might be better off using the Dave Ramsey strategy where Dave says, if I were in your shoes, I would. This way you're just stating what you would do. That's great advice. I need I need to do that because obviously some people's situations, I mean, I would be more concerned about liability insurance if I had a lawn mowing service because certainly I could pick up a rock and throw it through somebody's picture window. I do want liability insurance for that. But in what I do and in what a lot of professionals do, they can uh, chase their tails a lot because it's difficult to cover all the bases. Well, anyway, I, I says I've listened to you. Oh, Don says, I've listened to you long enough to realize you are willing to take on a lot more risk due to your confidence and your ability to bounce back. <laughs> Many of your listeners are much more cautious. Yeah, I probably need to keep that in mind as well. Uh, when I talk about, uh, you know, I'm the kind of guy, you know, I'll, I'll go out on a limb in a heartbeat if there's a quarter laying out there on the limb, whereas somebody else may see it as not being worth the risk. Yeah, I, I love, and I'm not a risky guy. I mean, I'm not going to endanger myself physically. I mean, I used to race bicycle motocross with my boys, and I had the number one plate, the number one standing in the 35 and over age category in the state of Kentucky for three years running. I was the number one ranked bicycle motocross racer in the state of Kentucky, three years running. Uh, Then I had a horrendous crash. Now, these are bicycles, not motorcycles. These are bicycles, but we still did some pretty radical things. And in one of the finals, defending my title for yet the third time, um, I went over the handlebars went over a jump and made one of those fatal errors, just leaned forward a little too much, came down, and I punctured along, broke my collarbone in two places. So I had a floating five-inch piece of bone, not attached at either end. I broke it in two places. I hit so hard. But anyway, did some major damage, and I thought, you know what? This is, this is no fun. I was wrapped up for six weeks, and it was a long recovery. And I thought, you know, I don't enjoy that kind of sport enough to risk that kind of long recuperation anymore. So there are some things that I certainly stay away from. 
Now, I still enjoy, you know, fast cars and some other things I should probably be more cautious about. But I'm not a, a real risk taker. I mean, I'm not going to jump out of a parachute or do bungee jumping. I mean, a lot of things that uh, other people see as just uh, the thrill. I don't do a lot of things just for thrills. But now in business and just trying new ideas, I'm sure other people would see me as a risk taker. But again, remember how I frame risk. I see risk as where you do not have control. So if I do something where I have no control over the outcome, that's risky. And you don't find me doing that even in business. I only do things in business where I've thought through a whole lot of possibilities and I see it on paper and I projected what's going to happen. And I know, you know, where I'm going to make this turn down the road. I mean, that's the way I approach business. Well, one more real quick here. And then I, how often do you keep calling? This comes from Brian. He says, how often do you keep calling when you're looking for a job? If, if they put you off when you do call, uh, I want to be persistent, but not aggravating. Great quest, question, Brian. And what I would tell you is keep calling until they tell you, no, we've made another decision. Err on the side of being persistent and aggravating. A whole lot of people quit way too soon. I mean, there are people, I know a guy who interviews for salespeople here in Nashville. Here's how he sets this up. He'll have you come in on a Friday and he says, wow, Brian, you're a great candidate. You're really the kind of guy we want to have on our team. I'll tell you what, I think everything's looking good here, but you call me Monday morning at 10 o'clock and we'll discuss the next steps. Well, what are you going to do over the weekend? You're going to tell your friends, man, I got this great new job. Things are really looking good. Monday morning, you call in, hey, I need to speak to Dan and there's no answer. He's not available. Jeez. About 2 o'clock, you start to get concerned. You call back again. Man, I left a message this morning. I still haven't heard back from Dan. He told me to call him at 10 o'clock. I haven't heard. Can I speak to him? Well, he's not available. I'll get the message to him. He purposely ignores the first two callbacks. You have to call three times before he's even going to acknowledge your call. Why? Because he's interviewing for salespeople. He wants to know what do you do when there's a little resistance? What do you do when it's not just an easy walk in the park? Are you going to be persistent enough or are you just going to drop off? Well, you know what? About 80% of his interviewees that he sets up in that way never make the third call. They just drop off. They assume, well, gee, he got somebody else. Gee, I guess he was, I wasn't the candidate that he wanted me to be. And they go on their way. Well, you know where that takes you. Right down a short path. Well, you can tell by the Taking Care of Business. Hey, I need to give you an update next week again on my interaction with Sony about the Taking Care of Business song. Funny kind of final chapter that everything's cool. We got permission to use this song, Taking Care of Business. We'll be doing it. I know you're taking care of business as you find or create the work that you love. Have a great week right here in Christmas time. Be planning what you want 2011 to look like for you.